Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Erin Free-Smith, and today we are with Brandon Kentamber, and we are speaking about his new book called Muslims Talking Politics, Framing Islam, Democracy, and Law in Northern Nigeria. It's published through the University of Chicago Press. So welcome, Brandon. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. First, if we could, let's start by talking about you and your background, how you arrived at this topic. Yeah, so I uh, I have a PhD in African political or African politics in political science from the University of Wisconsin, and when I came to graduate school in the early two thousands, uh, the story of Islamic law implementation in northern Nigeria was really at its very beginning. Um, and actually, I had intended to work on Cameroon. I had spent some time in the west province of Cameroon, which is this sort of wonderful place where the food is great, the weather is wonderful. Um, I worked on chieftaincy for my undergraduate thesis, and. Uh, my advisor, who was a wise man, said, you're really going to need to work on a bigger country if you're not going to be doing big cross-national comparative work. And Nigeria is right there. And I had um, I, I'd been just very, very briefly into Nigeria uh, when I had been in Cameroon because it's right across the border. And this was really the biggest thing that was happening in Nigeria when I was getting into the 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 story of it. And so I became really, I think, quite fascinated in how a country that's as big and diverse as Nigeria incorporates all of the demands and desires of its citizens. And, you know, given that this was an issue that by the time I was starting to write about it in 2007, 2008, had caused an awful lot of conflict and an awful lot of bloodshed, um, yet Muslims in Nigeria seemed to really genuinely uh, believe that it was a potential way forward for them as their country was sort of struggling through the democratization process. I just thought it was a thing that I could not talk about. It just seemed uh, like it was the most pressing issue on the table. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you arrive um, at, 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 at your method? Why did you decide that, that speaking to individuals versus a top-down approach would work better? Well, sure. Um, and it was an interesting saga to, to go about setting up this whole project. I, uh, 
So for you, for your listeners, uh, I, I had a Fulbright Award in 2007 and 2008 to do the bulk of my field research. And so I had the opportunity that not all political scientists have anymore to spend about a year in country doing sort of classical field research. Um, but if you look at the literature on northern Nigeria in particular, which is the society that has this wonderful old history of full of elites and big important history uh, people and military campaigns, um, so much of the early academic literature on northern Nigeria is very elite-driven. People want to talk to the Sultan of Sokoto and the Emir of Kano. People want to talk to the, the sort of big, important movers and shakers. And a lot of the senior folks in my field, who I have tons and tons of respect for, were able to write books and do projects where they really went and they interviewed people like Ahamadou Bello, the Sultan or the Sardana of Sokoto. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were really able to kind of sit at the feet of these really important people and use that as a storytelling device to frame. Nigerian politics and you know to be entirely honest that kind of thing was just not possible when I was in Nigeria in 2007 you know a graduate student who shows up from Harvard in 1965 in northern Nigeria I think just gets a very different reception than somebody from the University of Wisconsin in 2007 I was they've seen a lot of graduate students and they've seen a lot of professors and so part of my choice was one of access I could talk to regular folks in a way that was not as easy to do if I'd made an elite driven project choice. Um, But the other part of it really was that I feel like so much of the literature on Islam and democracy, you know, it's it's supposed to be this conversation about how Muslims are thinking about and talking about and working their way through the prospect of the cohabitation of Islam and democracy, but it ends up being a study of ideology and activists. It ends up being a study of um, members of the ulama, the clerical class, and things that are are written down, things that are, are cultural artifacts. And, well, I think you can learn a lot from that story, Um, and and I have colleagues who work on that part of the story. I can put a plug in for my friend Alex Thurston's recent book at at Cambridge about Salafism in Nigeria, where it is this this study of of elites and um, religious leaders. I think that we end up missing so much of the necessary story when we're only able to talk to people who are, this is how Robert Dahl talks about it in his great old work on democracy in the United States, who are the activists, who are the people who care so much that they're you know, in the public eye talking about it. And I really wanted to do a project. I was inspired by work in political science that had looked at the way that ordinary people responded mm-hmm. to public discourse and used that to think through their own attitudes and opinions. I thought, this is something that people are not doing. And whether or not it gets picked up, I don't know, but it will be interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and based upon that, do you have a theory, theoretical framework upon which you worked? Yeah, so I, I think it did work, um, and I'm grateful that the folks at Chicago thought it did too. Um, I think that I learned something that is very different than a lot of the current literature on Islam and democracy, globally, but especially in, in Africa. I think that I come away with kind of a much more optimistic story than a lot of other people. You know, the attention that was paid to Islamic law implementation in Nigeria in the early mm-hmm. 2000s in Nigeria focused on the violence, on the, the Muslim-Christian conflict. It focused on the, um, there were a couple of cases where, where women were um, tried and, and prosecuted for zina, for the crime of adultery, and there were some um, efforts that didn't amount to anything, luckily enough to, to engage in even capital punishment. There was talk of stoning. Mm-hmm. Um, it has this reputation as being this really kind of culturally retrograde place. And when you go out and you get beyond the politicians and the, the, the religious leaders, what you discover is that ordinary people are aware of it, in many instances are not actually super tolerant of people who aren't Muslims um, in the way that they talk and they frame political issues. 
But yet, it was not that the choice for them was Islam or democracy, Sharia or democracy. There was, you know, this very lively and really smart, engaged debate among the regular folks that I was interviewing um, about how to fix the problems that Nigeria has, what the alternatives are. And people really did seem to see democracy and Sharia as being things that could potentially be made to work together to solve problems. And I thought that that was... That's not a story that comes out, I think, unless you talk to people who are not activists. It's just not something that you can get at if your primary source of information are um, sort of official public proclamations. Sure, sure. So what was your documentation aside from speaking with the ordinary citizens? So what I did was uh, my, my, my project was, was inspired by this um, sociology book um, written in the early 2000s by a professor at Boston College named Bill Gampson, who's a, a really famous sociologist of American public opinion and behavior. And he's very interested in the ways in which people um, take the information that's out there available to them politically and use it to make sense of their own daily lived experiences. It's this way of getting at um, something that's a little bit deeper and more um, descriptive than what you can get at from, say, public opinion surveys. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets at this idea that's existed a long time in American politics, um, which is that if you survey people and say, you know, what are your political beliefs? Who, what party do you support? People have a pretty good idea of that. But when you get below that um, and into more specific and detailed political knowledge, people often don't know a lot um, about politics. They, they're making this very rational trade-out to um, follow other things and to go outside and to play with their kids rather than knowing the minutia like activists do mm -hmm. every in special political issue. And that people use shortcuts and heuristics uh, and ways of figuring out how to feel about political issues um, that they just kind of draw on in the moment as they need them. And so my kind of working theory based on this research from the United States was that you know, Muslims in northern Nigeria probably face the same challenges that Americans do. Mm -hmm. They probably don't have time to pay attention to every little nuance or detail of a political or religious debate. They're probably looking for shortcuts and ways of making sense of these things as they come out. And when you make that assumption that Muslims in Nigeria reason and think about politics the same way that, that Americans would, right, that politics is mm -hmm. politics, uh, it leads you to a different set of sources than I think would be the normal place that you would start. And so what I did was, following Gapson's methodology, I looked at elite discourse. I, I did. Um, I looked particularly at... at um, newspapers because there's a physical record uh, of them. You know, radio is a really big prominent media source for a lot of people in northern Nigeria, but it's ephemeral in the sense that it's often not recorded and preserved. And so paper is kind of a, a limited but okay proxy for kind of everything that's out there in the public sphere from elites. And I tried to get as best I could uh, a kind of complete and coherent picture of how politicians and religious leaders were talking about the relationship between Sharia and democracy in the early days of Nigerian Fourth Republic democratization, mm -hmm. so from 1999 to about 2005. And I got the sense that, in fact, um, kind of despite the way that this had been framed internationally where people were saying, oh, this is this retrograde anti-democratic movement, Nigerian politicians had been very cagey in the North about making sure that they didn't say, you know, Sharia supersedes the Nigerian constitution. We want God's law. We don't like democracy. They were very careful in this multicultural, multi-religious state to say, we're doing this via the constitution. We're being quite careful in the way that we frame and phrase these things. And so I wanted to then see if that 
that way of talking about Sharia got picked up by regular folks who were not necessarily part of those political games and had much less reason than their elites did um, to be cautious about how they talked about Sharia, right? They're not Mm -hmm. so plugged into the global national politics of those things. Um, But more importantly, it would suggest that people were being just like they are in the United States, influenced by what's out there and available, that people don't have the, the French sociologist Olivier Watt talks about, jokes about the idea of Quranic software implanted in the brains of Muslims, that they just know what their religion says about politics. So often, academic and public discourse on Islam just assumes that Muslims are so pious and so devout that obviously they know exactly how everything all goes together. And that's not how it works for most people in most places with politics. Um, and so I assumed that that wasn't true. And I said, how are people being influenced by um what's out there. And so I set up these focus group interviews. In all, we talked about 100 people where I was asking them these kind of open-ended questions and seeing if I could get them to draw on the public discourse, to ask them questions maybe they hadn't totally thought about what the answer was going to be with respect to the relationship between Islam and Sharia and democracy and see what they would fall back on when, holy crap, I have to come up with an answer now. And being asked by this researcher. And it turns out that sure enough, what they did is more or less exactly what people do everywhere, that they grabbed onto these elite discourse framings that existed, and they used them to, on their feet, think through and have a conversation with the group members what the relationship between Sharia and democracy was. And that in the whole, the outcome of this was actually pretty similar to what elites were doing, that it was supportive of the idea that Islam and democracy could coexist in northern Nigeria. Okay. How large were these focus groups? And, and, so, and generally, how diverse were they? I mean, how so, were you pooling them? Okay, all of which are really, really interesting questions for people who want to do social science methodology. Mm. Um, so most focus groups, like for business or for you know products, tend to be pretty big. They tend to be 10 to 14 people because um, you're not really looking for them to have a, a conversation. Uh, but Gamson's methodology actually calls them peer group interviews and not focus group interviews. And I sort of adopted that language. Mm -hmm. They're five to seven people. And the idea in particular is that they maybe know each other a little bit and that you're not doing it in some office someplace, but you're doing it in a local community center or in some cases in people's houses. And so they're feeling a little bit more free to talk to you, to show you how they're thinking through these questions, to take the lid off of their reasoning Mm -hmm. and expose to you that they're talking it out. Right. Right. Um, So they were smaller groups, five to seven people who knew each other. um, And they did tend to be individually a little bit less diverse on the whole. I think I talked to a pretty diverse group of folks. But because we were looking for people who are going to be comfortable with each other, we had, you know, focus groups that were women and focus groups that were men. And that was uh, sort of a prerequisite for making conversations happen. But focus groups that were and we talked to one group of people who were like low level um, Islamic school teachers. We talked to a couple of groups of people who were like petty traders and folks who worked in local markets. We talked to some students. We talked to folks who were kind of at the bottom level of Nigerian society who were like motorcycle taxi drivers. Um, some folks who worked in higher education. But generally, the idea was to talk to people. And the, the class dynamic of this doesn't translate exactly with the U.S., but who were like working class, sure. who were not the people who have the ear of the state governor or who are, you know, going to be publishing editorials in the newspaper, people who are receivers of that discourse rather than producers of it. And did you see a range of, of how they practiced Islam? Did you see more orthodox as, as well as the less devout or, or was it fairly standard? 
So we, we asked some some follow-up survey questions about piety and what it looked like. I mean, right. so if you if you look at the like the Afrobarometer survey, which is this big survey that's done cross-nationally in Africa about political values and beliefs um, and political culture, Nigerians are very, very religious, and Nigerian Muslims in particular. Like 96% of Nigerian Muslims say that the religion is very important to them. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of at least publicly diversity when you go out into the field and start asking people, well, how often do you pray how how religious people say that they're very religious i have no reason to believe that they're not but you know it's difficult when you're asking people that question publicly um but we did have a fairly interesting mix of people in terms of their background so nigerians are for the most part sunni muslims for those of you who know the 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 muslim world Mm -hmm. um there are there's a small community of shiites in nigeria and i don't think we've talked to any of them um but we talked to people who, you know, were a member of traditional Sufi brotherhoods. We talked to people who are followers of a group called Izala, who are um, a Salafi, kind of Middle Eastern-looking, oriented towards a uh, group of Muslims. We talked to people who are kind of unaffiliated with those tendencies and would just say, oh, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Sunni. And so I think we did have a fairly diverse range of people in terms of their religious orientations. But we were there to have people talk about their religion. Right. And, you know, the people who are going to be open to doing that are going to look maybe slightly different than the regular population. Mm-hmm. But that's just one of the, the things about doing this kind of research. And you, you read the book, so you know this. I, I refer back to public opinion research where I can to sort of validate or suggest that I'm on the right track. Sure. To say, hey, the, the responses people are giving here are not wildly different than what we're seeing in these other more um, randomly sampled contexts. Right. And how do you think that you were viewed by those you were trying to interview, you know, as a foreign person coming in. So one of the things that was necessary to make it work was that I wasn't in all of the interview rooms. I trained um, people who were facilitators. I I, I did a couple of them myself, um, but it was very much the case that when we were talking to people who weren't elites, I did one kind of practice focus group interview with um, people who worked at the local university and they were pretty comfortable with me. Um, But I, my presence there made it very strongly likely that people thought that things were going to get reported back to the government, Um, which is interesting because a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, oh, this means people aren't being honest with you. They're hiding. And no, what it meant was people were like, tell those people over in the government this, this, and this. We we need to be heard. Um, And that was also not exactly what I was looking for, right? I didn't want people's opinions about what needed to be done. I wanted them to talk and reflect. And so my... Even without my presence, sometimes that came through. I have a, a section in the book where I think I'm maybe more honest than a lot of people who do this kind of research are about what didn't work. I say a lot of it ended up being performative and not as conversational as I hoped it was going to be because people had this idea that this was going to get back to folks who might be able to make a change. Not that they were scared, but that they were like, get this all down. I got a lot to say. Um and that was, you know, not exactly what we wanted, but in the end, I think we were able to make it work. We we got a lot of text to look at. Mm-hmm. And does that maybe also speak to their feeling voiceless within the government? Oh, I, I think so. And I think that when people have said, you know, well, you only interviewed so many people, you know, how representative really is this? These are such artificial settings. I said, you know, people were not hiding what they felt about this stuff. I mean, there's some sense in which you get people together and they're always going to perform their identities. There's a big literature and sociology about doing these kinds of interviews and doing this kind of research where people have public personas that they're justifying and defending. Um, But I had very little sense that people were pulling any punches. Mm -hmm. And do they know how others outside were viewing them? Um, 
I, I don't know. I mean, certainly one of the um, overarching themes that I come back to a bunch of times in the book is the idea that when you go out, particularly with elites, but sometimes with regular, ordinary working class folks too, and you say, I'm here to talk about what you think about Islam, they'll say, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't want to hear what I have to think. Um, let's talk about the Sokoto Caliphate and the great history of Islam in this place. Let's read the original texts of the jihadists who brought reform Islam to Nigeria in the early 19th century. Why would, why would you want to hear what I have to say? Like they, they've got it all already. Um, and it was like pulling teeth sometimes, particularly with people who were a little bit more educated to get them to understand that I, I didn't want to do a historical study of documents. I wanted to hear what people right now were saying um, and how people were thinking right now. They were quite, I think, surprised to hear that someone like me would be interested. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, uh, do, were you able to find um, other religions represented, like the Catholic population or... So part of my research design was that I was interested in how Muslims were thinking about sure. democracy. So I didn't do intentional interviews with those folks. Um, but they're there. And I was interested in how the, um, the communities that I was looking at viewed those folks. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go anywhere in Nigeria, uh, any market, you're going to find Igbo communities. Any, um, you know, big city like Sokoto, where I did most of my research, is a, is a city of almost a million people, depending on who's doing the counting. I mean, there were lots of communities of Christians. There were churches, and they were advertising revivals. Um, they were not necessarily uh, shrinking violets when it came to being publicly out there, which was, I think, not something that I was expecting to see, given the way that um, northern Nigeria is often talked about as a place where you know Christians are persecuted sure. and, and repressed. And there is some of that some of the time. And my interviewees were often um, very dismissive of the needs or concerns of those communities. There's this kind of repeated trope that a lot of people have noticed around the Sharia debate in Nigeria, where people in places like Sokoto will say, well, we're 99% Muslim here. And if you go out, it is clear that that number is not accurate. Mm -hmm. The best surveys or um, statistical methodology suggest that it's probably more like 85-15. But those people, those Christians, get written out of the story by Muslims because they're not from that place. They're not indigenous to that place. And so we can pretend that they don't matter and we can pretend like their views are not necessarily important. And that it gets at this sort of undercurrent of illiberalism that comes along with the way that a lot of my interviewees were talking about democracy. And it's something I'm critical of. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that fits in in the long run with making democracy work in a place like northern Nigeria. Right. Um, so, so there was tension between the communities. but So if you talked to Muslims, they would say, oh, you know, we're Christian brothers. We're glad, you know that they're here, we have no problem with them, we just don't want the state to be supportive of their religion. Uh, I have lots and lots of interview quotes, and I talk about it in Chapter 7, which mm -hmm. is the of the interview data, where people are saying, well, we have this notion or understanding of fairness that goes back to the Nigerian um, constitution and this idea called the federal character, where it's, it's part of Nigerian settled law, that you have to try as best you can at the national and state level to balance across all religions, all ethnic groups, all um, communities and that. So, for example, it's not okay for... Um, you know, more than half of the ambassadors to be Muslim. If it's a country that's split 50-50 sure. between Muslims and Christians, you need to have a minister in the federal cabinet from every state so that all the ethnic groups are represented. And the way that kind of trickled into how ordinary people talked about it was they said, well, we're the indigenous folks here. We're the, we're the, the real Sokoto's community. We're the Sakwatanchi, the, the people of Sokoto. And so we 
deserve government support and favor for our religion. We should be looked out for. And those Christians, if they want the government to look out for them and speak up for them and give them resources, they can go home to their you know, ancestral uh, indigenous homelands in, within Nigeria. Um, we tolerate them. We're okay with them. But understand that this is a Muslim place mm. and that there are Christian places in Nigeria. And again, um, well, I see so much evidence that people like democracy and want democracy to work. This is a deeply illiberal undercurrent that even people who are supportive of democracy are not entirely sure how to live in a genuinely pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. And, and can that work? I, you know, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people have read the results of the last seven or eight years in Nigeria where there's been this kind of outpouring of violence mm. um, in the Northeast and, and, and radical Islamic extremism, which is itself a very charged phrase and perhaps not entirely apt for what we're talking about. Um, they, they say, oh, well, this is evidence that, yeah, all along Muslims in Nigeria were very radicalized um, and really not tolerant. And it, that's not the way that I read the story. I think that what you have are people who are genuinely trying to use the language that they have available to them to, to figure out the best way to make it work for everybody. It just happens to be that this is a real sticking point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's plenty of evidence. I don't write about it a ton in the book, but you pick up on it as somebody who spends time in Nigeria and studying Nigeria, um, that Christians in, in the southern part of Nigeria mm-hmm. – um, but also in other parts of Nigeria, are themselves also articulating similar issues that, you know, Muslims have their part of the country, we have our part, um, and we don't, we, do, we don't necessarily think that they deserve as much special treatment or as, favorit- as much favoritism as we think that they get, and we want favoritism. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes about this in research is that I have, a, I have like 400 books about Nigerian politics in my office. It's a wonderful collection. And, um, Nearly all of them that are about broad Nigerian politics that are edited volumes will have chapters by a Muslim scholar on Islam and politics in Nigeria and on a Christian scholar about um, Christianity and, and politics in Nigeria. And the Muslim scholar from Nigeria will almost inevitably write the whole chapter about, you know, Muslims, um, you know, their part of the country is poor. They've never had access to political resources. They're marginalized. And you'll flip it 20 pages and the Christian scholar will be saying Christians are marginalized. The Muslims run everything. Um, we don't get what we need. I, I take that as evidence that both sides have both grievances and perhaps are not being entirely honest about um, the way in which these things are kind of balanced in Nigeria. Um, but it is the case that there is this pervasive political discourse, this federal character idea that I've written about in some other articles, too, that I think makes it easy for Muslims and Christians alike because they are scattered about the country. There are Christian enclaves in Muslim-majority areas. There are Muslim enclaves in Christian-majority areas. People live next door to each other all the time, and they get along on a daily basis. Um, But that there is this tension that um, it's so easy to ask the government for stuff, especially because you're a Muslim or especially because you're a Christian. And that means that they don't have to flex that tolerance muscle always in ways that I would think would be more productive for democracy in a political sense versus a neighborly sense. Yeah. I mean, not that there's not ever conflict between Muslims and Christians, um, in neighborly senses. And I think we were talking before this got started about this growing Mm -hmm. violence between herders and settled farmers in the central part of Nigeria, um, which also happens to overlap with a religious cleavage. Um, but most Nigerians, most of the time get along with their religiously diverse neighbors. And that's a, Again, a message that maybe is not entirely obvious from what gets reported generally about Nigeria. I think that that's not obvious at all. I mean, the, the major players, they 
they command the headlines. So, yeah. so perhaps we could talk about those major players and how they fit into ordinary life. Because if, if the view that we're seeing from the West is that it's all extremists, it's all Boko Haram and, and that, uh, where do these ordinary people fit in? Well, I, I think, um, beyond my book, we don't necessarily always have a great idea of how they fit in. And I can really only speak to the, the Northern Muslim communities that I, I I've sure. worked in. And again, I want to emphasize that almost everyone in Nigeria underestimates the degree to which there are people who don't share their religious faith living in their midst. <laughs> Nigerian Muslims generally undercount Christians who are in their areas. Um, I think Christians generally undercount Muslims who live in their area. Um, but you know, what, I, what I say about Boko Haram, and I'm sure your, your listeners are broadly familiar with this story, you know, there are six or 7,000 Boko Haram fighters and 85 million Nigerian Muslims. This does not, to me, suggest that we have a population that is, you know, aching to take up arms against their neighbors or, or easily radicalizable. For the most part, people are trying to figure out how to make things better in their daily lives, and they're, they're muddling through. Right. They're just they're working it out as they go. Mm -hmm. And the voices of the people that I talk to very strongly evidence the fact that, you know, they want less corruption. They want government that's accountable. They want political leaders who don't steal money. They want a government that is evidently invested in their the improvement of their condition. And they're willing to talk about just about anything to get there, whether it's religion or democracy or really kind of anything else. Mm hmm. Has anyone proposed, or is there a major proponent of someone proposing a third way, a non-religious democracy? No. Can that... Nigeria, Nigeria is not a secular place. Um, sure. and so, so Nigeria has a, a constitutional clause about um, – yeah, some people, they frame it in terms of secularism. But there are not a lot of folks in Nigeria on the Christian or the Muslim side who are actively advocating to pull religion out of the public sphere. What people are pushing for is that their religion um, get more recognition – my favorite story about this is that in the mid-1980s, um, after years and years and years of the Nigerian government at the federal and state levels offering assistance and logistical support and sometimes even funding for Muslims to make the compulsory pilgrimage to Mecca during their lifetimes, mm -hmm. um, the Christian Association of Nigeria lobbied for and got funding to stage a Christian pilgrimage. Um, and they do it to a bunch of different places now. I think they go to Alexandria and Egypt. Um, they go to Jerusalem. They go to Rome. There is no mandatory Christian pilgrimage in the Christian any Christian tradition yes. I'm familiar with. Um, but they got they, they said this is not fair. We want this too. And so the Nigerian government pays for Nigerians to go to Rome every year during the national. It's called it was called the National Confab, the National um, Constitutional Convention that took place a number of years ago in Nigeria, where they were having a debate about. Uh, maybe whether or not there should be additional constitution um, changes. Uh, the Muslim uh, part of the community asked for, at, at this national confab, asked for a space to do their daily praying. Um, and the Christian uh, delegate said, well, we want a space too, um, to do our daily praying. And again, Muslims and Christians have different religious mandates when it comes to the performance of prayer. There is not sort of a five daily prayer requirement for most Christians the way that there are for Muslims. But in order to validate the federal character and to have everything be fair, um, Christians got their prayer ground too. And M Muslims do the same sort of thing. Muslim activists in Nigeria do the same sort of thing sometimes, but 
when you see things like that, you're not immediately drawn to the prospect of, oh, we'll diffuse religion, you know, or, or bring religion out of it. And so for me as a political scientist, the question has always been, how do you get people who are religious and for whom that's a very important identity um, and for whom it's probably not fair to ask them to just leave that at the door when they enter the political realm? How do you get them to coexist anyway? To be religious. And I, I, I should say that, you know, not only am I I'm an, I'm an American, but I'm a, you know, I'm not a religious guy myself. And in my, my views of American politics, I'm often not super excited when religious communities bring their religious values into the public sphere. But as someone who works on Nigeria, I've become increasingly aware of the need to make sure that people who are religious aren't required to check those deeply held values at the door of public debate, that we can figure out ways to accommodate those things without burdening folks who aren't religious, who are differently religious, but not by thinking that the solution is that people are just religious in their private lives. Mm -hmm. That just seems to me to be not workable. Right. Are there, do you feel like there's any outside forces outside of Nigeria who are putting pressures inside so, and here again, I would plug the work of some of my colleagues who are much more intentionally exploring those questions mm -hmm. in their research. Um, but yeah, so, you know, forces across the Muslim world, which is the part that I can speak most cogently about, uh, have for a long time attempted to influence the practice of Islam in Nigeria. You know, I mean, going all the way back to the fact that if you're engaging in the pilgrimage, you're connected with Saudi Arabia and the various um, ways in which they're trying to influence and shape Muslim practice around the world. Um, you have sort of obviously people who are traveling outside of the country on scholarships to do religious study. Even the British under the colonial era um, actively promoted certain kinds of Islamic schools and scholarships to certain parts of the Islamic world in order to shape the experiences that those folks would bring back. Um, but yeah, for, for a very, very long time, there's been an effort to shape and frame. And again, my, my, my colleague Alex Thurston at Georgetown, who has this wonderful new book about Salafism in Nigeria, um, talks a lot about this community of folks who live in Kano, um, mostly the biggest Muslim-majority city in Nigeria, who were educated at the Islamic University of Medina in um, Saudi Arabia. And the particular kind of religious doctrine and practice that they brought back and the way that that shaped politics over the last mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years. And it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the questions I get often when I lecture about this book from people who do that kind of more religious elite-centered scholarship is they say, you know, the trend now is to talk about Salafism and to talk about Islamic reformism, you know, that that's what people are talking about these days. And you don't have a lot of that. You're talking about a fairly unreconstructed vision of Islam. And I say, yeah, because when you go and you talk to people who are taxi drivers, they're not bringing it up so much. I mean, it's not that they're not necessarily going to preaching that's being done by Salafi imams, or that they're not even necessarily ideologically informed by it. But when you ask them to talk about Islam and democracy, it simply is not the language they're bringing up. Sure. Maybe it's changed in the last four or five years. Um, and certainly there, there, there are people who probably do it that way. Um, but I think my book is in some ways, not an antidote, but a, a, a slight corrective to the way that we might end up thinking about these things if we focus heavily on people who have really strong religious educations and for whom their religious vo vocation is the primary thing that they do in life. Mm -hmm. And so have you been able to follow up with any of your subjects? Um... I've not been able to, to redo interviews with those particular folks. And part of the reason is that because of IRB requirements, I don't actually have those people's contact information. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've been back to Nigeria a number of times, and I've kept doing research, although I've had to sort of pivot, unfortunately, towards 
Boko Haram related issues because that's what people have wanted to know about. And I'm sort of committed to um, taking the argument that I see in my book, which is that Nigeria is not a hotbed of radical extremism and then packaging that in a way that might be useful to people who make policy. Um, I believe that the findings that I've got here um, really are continually sort of validated by the fact that despite the incredible violence across northeastern Nigeria in particular, um, and the way in which uh, radical violence has become a daily part of people's worry or their consciousness in northern Nigeria, culture has been shaped by it. Um, the way that people think religiously has certainly been shaped by it. Shaped by it. Um, still today, most Nigerian Muslims live alongside Christian neighbors and, you know, we, we don't see this outpouring of radical extremism mm -hmm. that would be potentially so easily predicted. So how do they see these extremists? Do they see them as neighbors or do they see them as more foreign forces or elite forces or do you know what I'm saying? Do you? Yeah. So, and again, I'll have to say we're venturing a little bit uh, a ways away from the, the stuff that's empirical in my book, but I, I like to talk about it and I'm interested in it. Um, we don't have nearly as much data or evidence as we would like about who joins groups like Boko Haram. Um, the, the, the data is sketchy in large part because getting access to people who left the group um, has been hard and because the Nigerian military has arrested a lot of people and alleged that they were involved in Boko Haram sure. when realistically they probably weren't. And that's sort of a whole other story that people like Amnesty International have documented really thoroughly. Um, but in as much as we have decent survey data from places like northeastern Nigeria, what it seems to suggest is that the vast majority of people disavow religious extremism. Mm -hmm. um, they're not interested in supporting a group like Boko Haram, which targets Muslims really quite extraordinarily. It's part of the core ideology of their current um, or of one of their current leaders, Abubakar Shakao, is that Muslims who don't follow the Boko Haram way are apostates and therefore are you know, mm -hmm. valid subjects for violence. But that a lot of the people who have joined or participated have done so for economic reasons. Um, either they're in an area where violence is happening and they think hooking onto the group might mean that they and their families get a measure of protection, or because they're caught behind Boko Haram lines, they're trying to engage in business, they can't get goods or services into the area, and Boko Haram agrees to give them a little bit of money to help them out, mm -hmm. or because Boko Haram is promising financial incentives to people. And that there's not a lot of evidence that large, large numbers of people are joining groups like this because they're um, ideologically inclined to do so. Sure. And that echoes what you hear or what you see from research in places as different as Pakistan and Europe with respect to radicalization by ISIS. It's not that people can't be radicalized, but that the people who were supporting Sharia implementation because they wanted to see government reform were not necessarily a hundred percent the overlap with the people who ended up joining Boko Haram. Right. So, so you end the book on, on quite a positive note. Do you still have this positivism? Well, Sorry, the, the, positivism? Way, the way that I remember it, maybe, maybe it came across differently is that oh. I, I say I came back from Nigeria in 2007, 2008, feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. Here's a lot of evidence that Muslims are muddling through the relationship between Islam and democracy. Um, and that perhaps this bodes really well for Nigerian democracy in the long run. Um, and then Boko Haram happened. Yeah. And I, the, the way that I think about it, and I'm open to interpretation um, at the end of the book, is that I still come away with the idea that the vast majority of Nigerian Muslims are looking for a way to model through. They're looking for a way to make um, government better and more responsive, and they saw Sharia as doing that. They're pretty now skeptical and cynical about Sharia because it didn't work. It didn't have the impact that people were hoping it was going to be. And that, you know, 
of the people who eventually came into the circle of Boko Haram, a lot of them definitely felt that way, that they looked at the government's failure to really live up to the expectations that they pushed and presented as being, you know, traitorous, and that these are folks who are not committed to their religious values. Um, and they did radicalize. But the, the vast majority of people, um, I mean, were disappointed, but were still pushing for something different. They were not thinking that the solution was violence. Mm -hmm. And I, in as much as that's a positive story, I mean, I guess... I was less positive, perhaps, than mm -hmm. I had been five or six years ago when this book finally came out. But it still is a positive story in the sense that I think it's easy to look at a place like northeastern Nigeria where Boko Haram has killed so many people, where in 2015 it was the deadliest terrorist group in the world, and say, oh, this is a hotbed of extremism. And I think you have a lot of ordinary people who are shocked and aghast by this, or mm -hmm. aghast at this, and who are not likely to be easily radicalized, right, in as much as... Um, the group continues to be able to engage in violence because the government has failed to be able to prevent it. The military has not done its job um, in terms of providing security for these communities. And that, that's a different story than maybe the easy story. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so what is your next project? Where are you, where are you continuing with this research or are you being sort of sidelined into Boko Haram or? Yeah. So, so God help me, I'm writing a book about Boko Haram right now with a, with a colleague of mine, Carmen McCain, um, who's also a longtime Nigeria watcher, um, who actually works on houses of film and literature. And so we are doing kind of a social history of the conflict, uh, conflict um, which hopefully will be out in 2018 with Ohio University Press. Um, that's a different kind of book about Boko Haram. There have been a few books that have come out, but that have a lot of times focused on the ideology of the mm -hmm. group or um, the, the politics surrounding it. And we're really trying to do something that is a little bit broader and that gets in the ways that Boko Haram has affected um, people from a lot of different walks of life in northern Nigeria. Okay. Terrific. Well, we look forward to reading that when that comes out in 2018. Well, thank you very much. Um, if there's anything else you'd like to say, I mean, where do you see this this book fitting into the the greater literature? I mean, who who do you think should be picking this book up? Yeah, so uh, my, my my reviewers were very kind to say um, that they think that this book is something that people who are working on Islam and democracy should be definitely picking up. Whether mm -hmm. you're working on Indonesia and Malaysia, um, or the Middle East, or Pakistan, or West Africa. Uh, that hopefully I, I'm, I'm making an argument that's a little bit different than the kind of thing that you mostly hear. It's not sort of 30,000 feet up in the air survey data, but it's not just looking at um, thought leaders and ideologues either, that we're getting at kind of the lived experience of the relationship between Islam and democracy in practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I'm hopeful that it will be interesting to people like that. I think that for people who are interested in, in Islam in West Africa or Nigeria, I think that there's a lot here. Um, I had the great uh, privilege of giving a talk at Boston University last fall where it was being taught in some uh, Islam and, and world politics classes. Uh, and I'm hopeful that it's maybe going to be looked at by folks teaching African politics too. Uh, we read a little bit of it, my students in my democratization class this year, um, and they seemed to be really intrigued about um, thinking about democracy as something that is made in the daily, ordinary lives of people and not just something that's in constitutions. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'd like to think would be looking at it. Well, that's excellent. Thank you very much for chatting with me today. Um, yeah, this, has been, this has been uh, Brandon Kentammer speaking about his book, Muslims Talking Politics, published through the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much. Thanks. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.